You're listening to Metamodernism, a production of the Golden Age Collection, a 501c3 audiovisual archive based out of rainy San Francisco, California. Welcome to Metamodernism's look back on 2022's best music. There was a ton of great new music released this year, so we've got a long road ahead of us. Kicking off this year's retrospective is Imaginary Palms by Monster Rally, with a special introduction by the late Steve Jobs. One of the ways that I believe people express their appreciation to, to the rest of humanity is to make something wonderful and put it out there. In the act of making something with a great deal of care and love, something's transmitted there. It's a way of expressing to the rest of our species our deep appreciation. was Imaginary Palms by Monster Rally from the album Botanica Dream. Ted Fayen, aka Monster Rally, who you may remember from my Best Music of 2020 series, is an audiovisual artist based originally in Cleveland, Ohio, and now out of Los Angeles. This July, he released his eighth album called Botanica Dream, which his Bandcamp explains was inspired by dreams, both physical and imaginary. Equally inspired both by the golden age of hip-hop and 1960s exotica, 
Monsterelli conceived of Botanica Dream nearly a year ago when revisiting his collection of records sent back from his past travels. It's an album designed to take you on an exotic journey to lush locales. I stumbled upon Monsterelli's first EP while browsing Bandcamp in the summer of 2010 and have been hooked ever since. His sample-based soundscapes plunge the depths of exotica and lounge music from its golden age in the 50s and 60s and gives them a modern psychedelic flair. It's been a treat to get so much great Monster Alley music over the last 12 years, and Botanica Dream might just be my favorite Monster Rally album yet. It was great to see Monster Rally perform at the Rickshaw Stop this past September, which was his first time back in San Francisco since 2019. And in November, he embarked on a mini Midwest tour with Brother Tiger, who you'll hear about in a later episode. I'm excited to present to you Metamodernism's comprehensive look back on 2022's best music. I'm your host, Alexander Wool. And I'd like to thank you all for joining me on this annual journey through all of the great music released in the last 12 months. I'm here again with a bag of sonic treasures for you to enjoy. This year, my bag is particularly overstuffed. This is my third year doing these Best Music of the Year episodes, and every year my year-end playlist is longer than the last. While the official song count is likely to fluctuate as I'm producing these episodes, it has officially surpassed 170 tracks, which will be broken up across 11 themed episodes to maximize bitrate. And I know what you're thinking. 170 tracks? Why not just make some cuts? Can't you be more concise? And I hear you. I wish there was less good music being made. But this is the era in which we live. One of the tenets of metamodernism is the concept of peak media, where more films, television shows, music, and podcasts are being created now than they ever have been before. And if more music is being written by more musicians, then naturally these lists may get longer each year. I don't intentionally try to outdo myself every year, but I also don't want to exclude music that I feel is noteworthy or interesting. And since this is an independent podcast, I am beholden to no one, so I can make these lists however long I want. But that also means I've now committed myself to writing copy for over 170 tracks that no one paid me for, which is obviously a fool's errand, but I feel compelled to do it because while there is some overlap, a majority of my tastes in music are not reflected in any list compiled by Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, Gorilla vs. Bear, Brooklyn Vegan, or any other indie publication I've come across. Insofar as metamodernism is a brand, these songs reflect the music that this podcast gets behind and believes should be more widely appreciated. With the inundation of so much new music being released each year, sorting through all of it can be a chore. You need some form of curation to make sense of all this new music. So that's why for the past three years, while most of us unwind and celebrate the holiday season, I sit down to do the hard curatorial work for you to present the best music of the year. The benefit to you, of course, is the compression of time. It took years for these artists to make this music, months for me to curate the final playlist, weeks to write and produce these episodes, and hours for you to consume them. I scour the internet to find interesting music from around the globe. I don't use any music streaming services, so all of my music is obtained the old-fashioned way by downloading it, whether it be through Bandcamp, iTunes, or other various websites. In the preparation of this series, I've reviewed over 1,300 albums and EPs that were released in 2022. Albums, EPs, singles, if it was released in 2022, it's eligible for this list. In this series, there will be original songs, covers, remixes, and a few reissues. And due to the large volume of songs in this year's list, combined with my desire to take a more journalistic approach to crafting song introductions, and the fact that I have a day job means it will likely take longer than usual to produce these episodes and release them out into the world. So I appreciate your patience as these roll out over the next few weeks. I hope you'll agree they'll be worth the wait. 
because I've done the homework and I've compiled a collage of music that I'm confident has never been put together before on any platform or streaming service. This year, we have 21 states and 21 countries outside of the US represented on this list, including places like the UK, France, Germany, Sweden, Belgium, Japan, South Korea, Israel, and Ghana. There's also a large female representation on this list from artists blazing trails, yet who remain relatively unknown in mainstream circles. One of the side effects of peak media is that great indie music can be lost in the white noise of mainstream culture, which is a real shame because there are so many talented indie artists making interesting music that pushes the medium forward, yet not enough people are even aware that music like this exists, let alone listen to it. So that's why I keep doing this year after year, to shine a light on music that might otherwise go overlooked if you're not paying attention. Like a countercultural Casey Kasem, I'm here to curate annual sonic time capsules that people can look back on when they want to get a feeling for the music of a certain era. Podcasts are a permanently disposable medium, meaning most people listen to episodes once and then never replay an episode, but all episodes are available at all times to listeners old and new. And assuming there are no server outages, these podcast episodes, along with episodes of every podcast ever, will continue to live on, decades, possibly centuries into the future, for anyone to consume at any time. So from wherever or whenever you're listening, thanks for tuning in. There are many genres and styles of music represented on this year's list, including indie rock, dream pop, vaporwave, synthwave, downtempo, electronic, trip-hop, ambient, jazz, lounge, exotica, disco, dub, psychedelic rock, folk, and many more. There are new sounds being made that didn't exist in 2021, and that's worth celebrating. I realize that not every song may be your cup of tea, so feel free to scrub forward if a song isn't your vibe. The next track you hear could contain your new favorite artist. This first episode serves as a sort of sampler pack to the various types of music that you'll hear on later episodes. So if you like what you hear, there's plenty more to come. And as always, remember that artists make virtually nothing from your Spotify streams. So if you want to support the artists featured on these episodes, please consider actually purchasing their music, getting some cool merch, or buying a ticket to a show. Links to purchase all of the music will be featured in the show notes. I'm not sponsored by them, but I have been using the app Bands in Town for a decade now and would highly recommend it to anyone interested in attending live music events in your area. The app works by scanning your music library and searches your area for concerts from artists that you enjoy. I find out about many upcoming concerts through Bands in Town, and you can change your location. So if you want to go see a concert while you're on vacation, you can check to see what artists are playing while you're in town. But before we get back to the music, let's take a moment to have a hard talk about the state of the music industry. It has two very large malignant tumors that are leaching its lifeblood, and if left untreated, threaten its very existence. I'm of course talking about Spotify and Live Nation Ticketmaster. If you've been listening to my music episodes these past few years, then you already know my feelings about Spotify, who pays their artists fractions of a penny per stream while their executives rake in millions off of the backs of hardworking artists. So I don't have to repeat myself. But this year, I also have Live Nation Ticketmaster in my crosshairs as well. It's no secret that I enjoy going to concerts. In 2022, I had the privilege of attending over 30 live music events in San Francisco and across the Bay from a wide variety of bands like Caribou, No Vacation, The Drums, The Mermen, Dean Wareham, Dent May, Toro Imoi, Craftwork, The Shins, Paper Cuts, The Reds, Pinks, and The Purples, Animal Collective, LCD Sound System, The Avalanches, Wild Nothing, The Flaming Lips, and many more. 
My only regret is catching COVID and missing out on Dennis Quaid and the Sharks at Yoshi's in Oakland. And fortunately, many of the indie venues that I frequent aren't affiliated with Ticketmaster or Live Nation, but for the small handful that are, I always dread giving them my business. For example, my favorite comedy club in the city, Punchline, is outright owned by Live Nation, and surprise headliners are announced only a handful of hours before the showtime, so you have no choice but to buy the tickets online through Live Nation's website. Tickets for Dave Chappelle's recent pop-up shows were $150 each plus an $18.75 service fee for a total of $337.50 for a pair of tickets. And that, of course, does not include their mandatory two-drink minimum, so we need to account for two $15 cocktails per ticket on top of that, which brings the grand total to just shy of $400 for a single night of stand-up comedy. Concert tickets are interesting to study from a business and economic standpoint because there is a limited supply for something with a high demand. Throughout the history of concerts, ticket scalpers have wedged themselves between artists and fans, buying up large quantities of tickets to then resell at a higher price point. Scalpers have no interest in the music being performed and only see concert goers as sheep to be milked for their money. People are sometimes willing to pay astronomically high prices for concert tickets due to fear of missing out and the idea that some concerts are once-in-a-lifetime events. As a result, concert tickets are a commodity that have a fluctuating value but have a definitive expiration date. Depending on the available supply, overzealous ticket scalpers listing their tickets for two to three times the face value tend to drop the prices closer to face value as the concert date grows closer. If their prices are too high and no one bites, they've lost their initial investment and the ticket is a sunk cost. It's been over 12 years since I wrote a research paper during my senior year of high school that laid out the dangers of Ticketmaster and Live Nation merging. At the time, the merger was just going through, and I knew it was a bad idea from the start, but was powerless to do anything. The United States Department of Justice has been asleep at the wheel these past 12 years and have allowed a bad idea to become a bad reality, which in the recent past has become a dystopian nightmare for music fans. To catch you up to speed, Live Nation and Ticketmaster were two separate online ticket sales companies who happened to own or have exclusive deals with most of the concert venues for which they sold tickets. Independent of each other, they covered a lot of territory in the US and abroad, and combining forces, they control 80% of all ticketing sales in America. And for the last 12 years, Ticketmaster Live Nation has become unstoppable because no one in the federal government seems to care about the injustices happening within the live music industry. Let's talk broad strokes about the frustrations that concert goers have had over these last 12 years. First, there's the outrageous convenience fees, service charges, processing fees, and any other fees they can throw at us, which are usually set to be a percentage of the ticket price. So the more expensive the initial ticket price is, the higher these fees will be. These unnecessary fees add nothing to the concert going experience and only serve as a shameless money grab by a powerful company to milk more money from music fans everywhere. Next, they introduced a first-party after-sale market for fans to conveniently and safely buy and sell aftermarket tickets. Ticketmaster and Live Nation would like you to think that this is an attempt to combat sketchy third-party aftermarket ticket sales websites and to ensure secure ticket transfers. But in reality, it's all about them taking a cut of scalp ticket sale prices. Because not only do they take a cut of the initial sale in addition to their outrageous fees, they get to do it all over again when the ticket gets scalped for three times the face value, and because the fees are percentage-based, they stand to make a lot more money the second time around. In 2018, The Rolling Stone reported that an investigation into Ticketmaster revealed that Ticketmaster had hired scalpers to resell large batches of their own tickets. 
Ticketmaster has every incentive to do this because they will make more money for every marked up aftermarket sale of their tickets. And most recently, Ticketmaster Live Nation have introduced a new way to rake concert goers over the coals called Official Platinum Seats, which are batches of regular tickets that are set aside by Ticketmaster to arbitrarily sell above face value. To understand Official Platinum Seats, let me read an excerpt from Ticketmaster's own Frequently Asked Questions. Quote, are official Platinum Seats resale tickets? No, official Platinum Seats were not purchased initially and then posted for resale. They are being sold for the first time through Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster's official Platinum Seat program enables market-based pricing, adjusting prices according to supply and demand, for live event tickets, similar to how airline tickets and hotel rooms are sold. The goal is to give the most passionate fans fair and safe access to the best tickets while enabling artists and other people involved in staging live events to price tickets closer to the true market value, end quote. If that isn't the biggest crock of corporate BS you've ever heard, I don't know what is. After introducing these new measures, on November 5th, Ticketmaster Live Nation reported record quarterly earnings of $6.2 billion, which was fueled by an all-time high in combined ticket and fee charges. Ticketmaster's fees can now cost up to 78% of a ticket's face value. All of this shady business has been going on for several years now, but two recent ticketing debacles have thrust Ticketmaster's practices into the mainstream conversation. Taylor Swift sold tickets to an upcoming tour exclusively through Ticketmaster, and demand was at an all-time high. When Ticketmaster opened up a pre-sale, Swifties would be given an opportunity to buy select tickets in advance before the rest of the tickets went on sale to the general public. Demand was so high, the pre-sale crashed the website and millions of fans were left wondering what had happened. When Ticketmaster did come back up online, they made a shocking announcement. They had sold out of all tickets for the upcoming tour during the pre-sale and no other tickets would be made available to the general public. Swifties everywhere set the internet ablaze with social media posts expressing their rage, disbelief, and disappointment that Ticketmaster had screwed them over like this. But from Ticketmaster's perspective, they have a product to sell and are looking to make the most money possible in the least amount of time. Bots, scalpers, fans, Live Nation Ticketmaster is indifferent to who ends up buying the tickets. To Ticketmaster, they're all just paying customers, which is why Ticketmaster is such a toxic company. They're a live music event company whose business practices make it very clear that they don't care about fans of live music. As a result of this incident, the Rolling Stone reports that Ticketmaster Live Nation has been hit with two class action lawsuits alleging that the ticketing company has violated federal antitrust laws and unfair competition laws, and that they misled consumers in the sale of tickets for Swift's upcoming tour. The lawsuit reads, in part, quote, Ticketmaster intentionally and purposefully misled millions of fans into believing it would prevent bots and scalpers from participating in the presales. However, millions of fans were unable to purchase tickets during the Taylor Swift presale and the Capital One presale due in large part to the unprecedented website traffic caused by Ticketmaster allowing 14 million unverified Ticketmaster users and a staggering number of bots to participate in the presales." End quote. This new federal lawsuit follows a California lawsuit submitted earlier this month in Los Angeles County District Court in California, where Ticketmaster's parent company, Live Nation, is located. The complaint, which was obtained by the Rolling Stone, alleges Ticketmaster violated the California Cartwright Act and the California Unfair Competition Law during its presale to verified fans on November 15th and 16th. Both the federal suit and the California filing allege similar misdoings. 
Quote, millions of fans waited up to eight hours and were unable to purchase tickets. Ticketmaster intentionally and purposefully misled ticket purchasers by allowing scalpers and bots to access Taylor Swift ticks presale. End quote. In addition to Ticketmaster controlling the primary ticket market, the suit alleges its expansion into the secondary ticket market, along with the company's agreements with stadiums, quote, force fans to buy more expensive tickets that Ticketmaster gets additional fees from every time the tickets are resold, end quote. Then later in December, StereoGum reported that hundreds of fans were denied entry into Bad Bunny's Mexico City concert after being told that their legitimate tickets were fraudulent despite being purchased through Ticketmaster's platform. Pictures and videos from inside the venue taken mere minutes before the sold-out show was set to begin showed a nearly empty stadium due to fans who purchased legitimate tickets being turned away at the door. Ticketmaster issued a statement saying that, quote, the issues with access were the result of an unprecedented number of fake tickets, which led to a not normal agglomeration of people and an intermittent operation of our system, end quote. And yes, that's an exact word-for-word -word quote from Ticketmaster. And the company said it will issue refunds to ticket holders who were unable to gain entry. The federal attorney for the Mexican consumer, a government entity, has opened an investigation into the incident. It is time for the Department of Justice to break up Ticketmaster and Live Nation. They are a monopoly with a global reach intent on abusing their power to maximize profit at the expense of music fans everywhere, and they must be taken down. But I'll get down off my soapbox now because I've been talking for the last 18 minutes, and this is an episode about the best music of the year, not about problems plaguing the music industry. 2022 was the year of Panda Bear, Back in the late 2000s, Carl's from Hipster Runoff would often joke that Pandy Bear is coming to save music in 2010 or 2011. And dare I say that in 2022, he indeed saved music? Panda Bear had a stellar year in 2022, releasing an embarrassment of riches in the form of a new Animal Collective album, a collaborative album with Sonic Boom, and being featured on a record six tracks from artists like Braxton Falcon, No Saj Thing, Teebs, George Fitzgerald, Lifted, and Imperio Pacifico. For the uninitiated, based in Lisbon, Spain, Noah Lennox has been making music under the moniker Panda Bear in various capacities since the late 90s. You may know him from Animal Collective or Jane, but Panda Bear's solo music has always been my favorite. His ability to craft memorable melodies and rich harmonies has often drawn him favorable comparisons to Brian Wilson and it is my humble opinion that he is one of the most important and interesting artists making music today. His debut solo album, Person Pitch, was released in 2007 and sounded unlike anything else at the time. Noah's kaleidoscopic use of samples, combined with an unconventional singing style, ranging from soaring melodies to throaty chants, had him sailing in uncharted sonic waters, and it made waves in the indie scene. Fifteen years later, Person Pitch remains a high watermark for indie music released in the first decade of the 21st century. In 2011, Panda Bear tapped Sonic Boom to mix his follow-up album, Tomboy, which marked the start of a fruitful working relationship. Sonic Boom then mixed 2015's Panda Bear Meets the Grim Reaper, which tackled themes of grief, fatherhood, and human nature, and pushed Panda Bear sound into new Sonic territory. And in 2022, they teamed up again to make their first official collaborative album called Reset, which was released this August on Domino Records. Their bandcamp explains the album's intention. Quote, Sonic Boom's notion was simple enough. After lugging his records to Portugal years ago, his fascination was renewed by old favorites and standards he had not heard in years. 
Something struck him the way the ornate intros by Eddie Cochran or the Everly Brothers felt largely like stage curtains, compelling in their own right, even if they had very little to do with the hits that followed. Sonic Boom began crafting loops from these preambles, twisting and bending the parts like scrap metal before sending them on to Panda Bear. The kernel of reset emerged not long after the international lockdowns began, end quote. In an interview with The Last Donut of the Night, Noah explains, quote, Our dream for the record was for it to be some kind of medicine, for ourselves and for other people. Working on stuff became the only way I could take my mind off the spiraling outside, so I really leaned super hard into work and took any chance I could get to work on things. I was trying to make lemonade out of lemons. A lot of stuff that comes out of the songs is from conversations that Pete and I were having over the last three years. One thing that we talked about is a lot of just feeling like super cynical, negative, and defeatist about how bad things are. And admittedly, they do seem pretty bad, which didn't seem to help anyone. So we wanted to jump at the chance of trying to go the opposite way and bring some light, energy, and encouragement to people to try to make things better. Not in a naive, stupid, or sheltered way, but in a positive and loving way. We wanted to tackle the problems that face us and to try to help each other, end quote. Likewise, in the same interview, Sonic Boom was quoted as saying, quote, I remember thinking to myself, if this is medicinal for me, it must be for other people, end quote. And they're right. Reset certainly was medicinal, and it stands as one of 2022's most joy-filled albums. Panda Bear's soaring vocals over sample-based tracks had some online users calling the album Person Pitch 2. A limited edition vinyl run of Reset on Bandcamp included a $10 contribution going to support MAPS, a nonprofit research organization with the mission of developing psychedelic therapies into medicinal treatments to achieve mass mental health, which was a pretty groovy thing of Panda Bear and Sonic Boom to do. Picking just one track off of Reset was a hard task, but up next is perhaps the purest pop song Panda Bear has ever crafted. This is Edge of the Edge by Panda Bear and Sonic Boom. You took it out, but you can put it back. You took it out, but you can put it back again. You took a swig and then you take a crack. You're running quick, but you're running off the track. One day's to break the fall. One way to take us all to the shore. Can't say it's what you're barking for. It's forever at the push of a button. Put 
Edge of the Edge by Panda Bear and Sonic Boom off of their album Reset. Tops were formed in Montreal, Quebec when songwriting duo David Carreri and Jane Penny decided to join forces with drummer Riley Fleck. Since then, they have become one of the most influential underground bands of the past decade, creating a space for sophisticated pop music in the indie world. They're one of my favorite bands making music right now, and they were featured on my Best Music of 2020 series. This year, they came back with an excellent EP called Empty Seats. Up next is my favorite track from that EP, which feels like a song from a lost John Hughes movie. This is Party Again by Tops.
Party Again by Tops from Empty Seats EP. Day and Dream is the Asheville, North Carolina-based duo of Abby Amea and Peter Frizzanti, and together they conjure up memorable dream pop gems. Their bandcamp describes them as forest explorers, stargazers, sleepwalkers, and dreamers. And listening to their music, the association is clear. Their sophomore album was released this February on Lily Stars Records. This is my favorite track from that album called Rabbit Hole.
That was Rabbit Hole by Day and Dream from the album The Art of Remembering. Toronto-based Always made a splash in 2014 with their self-titled debut album, which was a quintessential example of the college rock sound. Their self-titled debut was released when much of the band was still in its early 20s and offered speculation about a distant future, marriage, professionalism, and interplanetary citizenship. They followed it up with their excellent sophomore album, Anti-Socialites, released in 2017, which wrestled with the woes of the now, especially with anxieties of inching towards adulthood. It would be several years of radio silence before we heard from the band again. From their band camp, quote, Always never intended to take five years to finish their third album, Blue Rev. In fact, the band began writing and cutting its first bit soon after releasing Anti-Socialites. Global lockdowns notwithstanding, Circumstances both ordinary and entirely unpredictable stunted these sessions. Always toured more than expected, a surefire interruption for a band that doesn't write on the road. A watchful thief then broke into singer Molly Rankin's apartment and swiped a recorder full of demos, which happened one day before a basement flood nearly ruined all of the band's gear. They subsequently lost a rhythm section and, due to border closures, couldn't rehearse for months with their masterful new one, drummer Sheridan Riley and bassist Abby Blackwell. In October of 2021, they arrived at a Los Angeles studio with fellow Canadian Sean Everett, who urged them to forget the careful planning they'd done and just play the stuff straight to tape. On the second day, they ripped through the album front to back twice, pausing only 15 seconds between songs and only 30 minutes between full album takes. Named after the sugary, alcoholic beverage Molly Rankin and keyboardist Kerry McClellan used to drink as teens on rural Cape Breton, their new album, Blue Rev, looks back at both the country past and forward on an uncertain world, reckoning with what we lose whenever we make a choice about what we want to become. After recording the album, Always flew up to San Francisco on Halloween to play their first live show since the pandemic at my neighborhood venue, August Hall, which saw the band dress as matching vampires. We'd have to wait another year until this October for Always to release their third album, Blue Rev, but fans and critics agreed that it was well worth the wait. On Blue Rev, Always punched up their power pop into some of their boldest and loudest songs to date, with Molly's wistful lyrics still anchoring the songs in melancholy. Blue Rev is a richly produced record, and it's an easy contender for one of the best albums of the year. Up next is my favorite track from Blue Rev, Many Mirrors.
by Always from the album Blue Rev. New Zealand-based Yumi Zuma makes soft, danceable indie pop and were featured on my Best Music of 2020 series. Their smooth sounds helped define the new wave of indie bands that swept the scene in the mid-2010s. They returned this March with a new record called Present Tense. Yumi Zuma's Josh Burgess likens the band's songwriting process to gardening. Quote, Someone brings in a seed, and through collaboration, it grows into a song that is vastly different from its original form, end quote. And like any garden, this is one that requires dedicated tending, a practice that seems rather inconvenient, if not straight-up difficult, considering the fact that the four members live in disparate parts of the world, calling New York, London, and New Zealand home, but long distance has always been a feature of their songwriting process, not a bug. Their new album, Present Tense, is the product of these efforts. A work singer Christy Simpson describes as, quote, a gallery wall displaying these different moments in each of our lives, a process of curation, revisiting the past and making it relevant to the present, end quote. Dedicated to an embattled past, present tense is the band's offering to a tenuous future. To 2020 and the memory of all that was lost, they wrote in the album's liner notes. Famed indie writer-director Alex Ross Perry was tapped to direct three music videos for the lead singles, which helped give the songs a visual identity. Yumi Zuma had a stellar year, embarking on several sold-out tours. I was fortunate enough to see them at The Independent in May, and they returned to San Francisco in November, playing with Homeshake at the famous Fillmore. Up next is one of my favorites from the album, called Of Me and You.
Love Me and You by Yumi Zuma off of the album Present Tense. Yindling is the project of Norwegian musician Silja, who released her self-titled debut earlier this year. With influences like Beach House, Mazzy Star, and Tops, Yindling offers an atmospheric and airy soundscape centered on an intimate sense of songwriting. As she explained in an interview with the online indie magazine I Am You Are, quote, Yindling means favorite in Norwegian, but it's not directly translated. It's kind of like a favorite thing that you hold dear, like something with a nostalgic feel. She would later go on to say, I've been drawn to the dream pop sound ever since I first listened to Beach House's Teen Dream. I think that was the first of their albums I ever heard, and something about the melancholy in the melody, as well as the whole production, it's kind of simple yet brilliant, and it makes me feel sad and happy and restless and content all at once. I guess I want to capture the same sort of chaotic emotions with my music, and especially with Cotton Candy Skies, I wanted that feeling of sweetness and melancholy combined, end quote. Which is fitting because Teen Dream is perhaps my favorite Beach House album, and Cotton Candy Skies was my favorite track from the EP. This is Cotton Candy Skies by Yindling.
Cotton Candy Skies by Yinling from Yinling EP. Last year on my Best Music of 2021 series, I featured a duo of brothers from Grand Rapids, Michigan called Cal and Red. They were hot off the heels of their debut EP, Cellular, which showed some real indie pop chops. This year, they snuck in a follow-up EP right before the buzzer. Sync EP was released December 16th and contains another five tracks of smooth synth and guitar pop from the brothers. For those of us out west, you can catch them at the Treefort Music Festival 2023 in Boise, Idaho. I'll be playing my favorite cut from the EP, which has a vocal interplay that neatly demonstrates the boys' ability to craft catchy melodies and counter melodies. This is Can I Call You Tonight slash Quarterback by Cal and Red.
was Can I Call You Tonight Slash Quarterback by Callan Red from the Sync EP. Like Callan Red, Disk System calls Grand Rapids home, and since 2020, Disk System has been making chill synth and synthwave music. This year, Disk System partnered with legendary synthwave and future funk label Stratford Court to put out a new batch of songs called In Silico. It's unclear if this is considered the producer's second EP or debut album, but there's little to no information online about this mysterious artist, so it's best to let the music speak for itself. This one is one of my favorites from the record, a song called Supervisor. was Supervisor by Disk System off of the album In Silico. Tutankhamen is the solo project of young British multi-instrumentalist and songwriter Ali Toomey. 
He draws influences from a wide range of instrumental music from the 50s and 60s, and after making music in his bedroom, he was discovered by BBC Introducing. This year, he released his debut album as Tutankhamun. Inspired by soul, jazz, and psychedelic music, his first album is a successful attempt at combining these genres together. All tracks were written, performed, produced, and mixed by Ollie, which is pretty impressive given the range of sounds explored on this record. Up next is my favorite track from the album, Ask Me Again. Ask Me Again by Tutankhamun off of his self-titled debut album. This next track may be a bit of an odd choice for this list, 
But being a lost media nerd, the story behind this track was too good not to share. It's a track from Supera Concilio's soundtrack to the critically acclaimed but commercially obscure golf video game Supera Golf 2004. From the band camp, quote, This record was salvaged from the demolished Supera Games Limited offices in late 2011 after a fire destroyed most of the building. It has been restored for the first time ever. Although a few copies of the game still remain in circulation, only a select few tracks actually made the final cut of the video game. Each track was designed to be looped indefinitely for the courses on the game. It is suspected that the production of the soundtracks like this ultimately led to the downfall of Supera Games Limited in the late 2000s. End quote. The entire soundtrack is filled with relaxing melodies and is worth checking out if you're looking for calming music. And we almost lost it in a fire. So out of the piles of burning rubble comes this next track, Mission Beach by Supera Concilio. was Mission Beach by Supera Concilio from Supera Golf 2004. At 92 years old, Finland-based vibraphonist Jukka Havisto is by far the oldest musician on this list. He may also be the most accomplished. In the 50s, he started his career in advertising, later becoming the vice CEO of the advertising agency Artifacts, before founding his own advertising agency PRAX in 1975, and he worked there in the capacity of CEO and chairman. Alongside his business career, he has been an active musician in various bands, playing both the accordion and the vibraphone. 
In the 90s, he acted as the head of the Finnish Jazz Archive and published a book on the history of jazz music in Finland. This year, he released a vibraphone album called September Song, which is a classic-sounding jazz record. This is my favorite track from that record called Softly As In A Morning Sunrise. Thank you. 
as softly as in a morning sunrise by Yuka Havisto from his album September Song. In 1998, the French duo Air lit up the music scene with their debut album Moon Safari, which helped usher in the new era in downtempo electronic music. Their smooth electronic sounds would later be channeled in bands like Zero Seven and Royxop. Even in 2022, Moon Safari remains a quintessential album in the downtempo electronica genre. Turntable Kitchen is a site connecting food and music, born in a foggy inner sunset San Francisco apartment and now based in Seattle. They've become well known for commissioning indie artists to cover classic albums in their entirety. This year, they tapped Dave Depper, a multi-instrumentalist, composer, producer, and guitarist and keyboardist for Death Cab for Cutie. Here's what he had to say about the project. Quote, The edict from Turntable Kitchen was simple enough. Cover an iconic album from the late 90s in its entirety. I didn't have to do much thinking on it before deciding upon Air's Moon Safari, a record as formative in my musical development as any Beatles album. It also provided a fun challenge. How do you cover a record that's nearly half instrumental? I enjoyed tweaking the sound palette quite a bit from the gauzy 60s to a more sleek 80s flavored patia. Loops of lounge drums were replaced by a vintage Roland 707 drum machine. The ubiquitous vocoders had to go. Baroque acoustic pop grew some disco beats, and fuzz guitars roamed the landscape here and there like predatory dinosaurs. Did I improve upon one of the greatest albums ever made? Of course not. But boy, did I have a great time taking a swing at it. End quote. Up next is one of my favorite tracks from Moon Safari, Simatin La, which is French for That Morning. It's a light and pretty track that Dave punched up a bit into a more danceable affair. And it is with this track that I'll send you off into the night. I'll be back soon with part two on my look back on 2022's best music.